Good morning and welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today's Monday, July 25th. And here are a few of the top stories that we're covering at hotair.com today. If you haven't already been there, we're uh, going to have a full slate of stories for you today, so be sure to check it all out. I started off today talking a little bit about uh, the White House trying to uh, redefine what recession is going to be. Next week's second quarter GDP numbers will be coming out, the inter- excuse me, the, um, the advance report, the first report uh, from Commerce on the nation's economy in the second quarter. And it's widely expected that this is not going to be a good report. The first quarter was negative growth, uh, minus 1.6% annualized GDP. And the popular definition of a recession is two quarters in a row of negative growth. Now, there's some issues with that. The popular definition isn't actually the official definition. The National Bureau of Economic Research usually is is the board that determines when a recession starts, when it ends. That's been true for a number of years. I mean, this has been true for quite a while. Uh, But the popular definition still holds some sway with the electorate. And this is what the problem uh, that the White House is going to have. They're going to have a big problem with this because we're already starting to see people have the perception that we're already in a recession and a negative number in Wednesday's report is definitely going to leave the impression that that is very much the case. And it might very well be based on how consumer spending is going, based on what happens in the jobs market. There's already indications that the jobs market is starting to falter. There was a big Washington Post piece on that last week, in fact, uh, that that the jobs market was starting to flash amber, if not red, as I put it on Friday. So these are the things that are going to be coming up. And what the White House is trying to do is they're trying to get ahead of this, right, to say, well, look, uh, you know, you can't just assume it's a recession uh, when if if this number comes back negative. Well, that tells us a couple things. One, they expect this number to come back negative. They wouldn't be out front uh, shaping the PR battleground if it wasn't if they weren't convinced that that there was a need to do this. If they thought that this number was going to come back positive they would probably not even be talking about how to define a recession because that automatically sets up the expectation. Uh, Now, you could argue that they're they're playing like sort of a a, a double back strategy that they're they're setting low expectations so that when a good number comes in, they can celebrate. It's possible, but my guess is that based on some of the consumer spending numbers that we saw, the unadjusted for inflation numbers where consumer spending was either uh, stagnant, which it was in May, or 1% growth in June when inflation was running at 1.3%. My guess is that the inflation-adjusted numbers that we're going to see uh, on Wednesday will be negative in terms of consumer spending, at least slightly negative. And that may also be true in uh, the July jobs report, which will be coming out about a week after that, about a week and a half after that. So it's very it's very possible that the NBER is going to declare a recession anyway. It's also possible that they won't. Um, there's, uh, we have to see what the numbers say, but just the fact that the white house is pushing this tells us that there's a really good potential for this being a negative number on Wednesday. Now they can push back all they want on this. The problem is, is that they completely fried their credibility by denying inflation existed for months and then trying to shift the blame for it to everybody except the Biden administration and its energy and supply chain policies. So they're running the same risk here of running what I call the chip Diller all is well, all is well strategy uh, last year on inflation when all was clearly not well. 
It's still not well. You know, you got inflation at 9.1%. It's running the hottest it's been in the CPI. So if they're going to come out after Wednesday and say, all is well, all is well, who's going to believe them at this point? I mean, there's literally no credibility left on this. So that was my VIP post for this morning, is, is going over those issues and seeing what the White House options are, which are bad. I mean, you've got Q3 numbers that come out right before the midterms, right? I mean, I know there's there going to be some early voting, but it's the, the Q3 numbers are going to come out just about two weeks before people go to the polls on Election Day in the midterms. And based on what the Federal Reserve is going to be doing to try to tamp down demand, based on what we're already seeing from consumer reaction to high inflation in terms of spending money, uh, it's looking like even if you don't want to, even, even if the NBER says, well, you know, despite two, two uh, successive quarters of contraction, we don't think this is a recession. Um, by the time you get down to, <laughs> by the time you get down to the midterms, there's really going to be no denying this unless something radically changes, right? A huge amount of supply of oil and gasoline show up in the marketplace. Prices drop incredibly fast back down to, you know, early 2021 price levels. Unless you see something like that happening, uh, we're on a trajectory here, and that trajectory is almost certainly taking us into recession. So a, a few other things that are coming up, by the way, and that I've already written about. Um, we've, we've, we're seeing some numbers on term limits for Supreme Court justices. I've got that uh, post up there. Uh, the Democrats' midterm pitch now is going to be the CHIPS bill that's going through House and Senate. That's a problem because what the CHIPS bill does is it puts a whole bunch of cash into the pockets of high-tech corporations that are already paying incredibly low tax rates. I mean, they pay much lower tax rates than, say, oil companies do. They make tons of money. Uh, what we're trying to do, it, it's not that this is bad policy either. We're trying to get them to relocate their supply chains out of places like China so that we can have a more stable supply chain. But this is something that they should have been doing from the start of last year when the supply chain crises were already evident, especially in the chips market. Uh, instead, they prioritized a whole bunch of other stuff ahead of it. They failed on all of it. And now their big mid midterm pitch is going to be they stuck cash into the hands of big corporations. I I am really interested to see how, pro how progressives react to that midterm pitch. That should be a lot of fun. I have a post about Kamala Harris declaring pregnancies a crisis. Now, it's like, not quite what she did, but that's what it sounds like. And it's uh, it, and also her um, her supposed use of a Venn diagram to to find out the real conspiracy against reproductive rights. Um, just all sorts of nonsense. Other there's other great stuff coming up too. Uh, all the pundits got a post analyzing Newt Gingrich's claim that the uh, Republicans are going to win 70 seats in the midterms, which is, which would put them at somewhere around 290 seats in the house, which is, uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I'm sure, you know, Newt, Newt's a, a smart guy, but he's also a real, you know, rose colored glasses guy when it comes to this stuff. And I don't think that you can, I don't think that Republicans get, get, can get to 290. I don't think Democrats can get to 290 these days. I think 260 is, would be a huge win, you know, 40 seats, would be a huge win for Republicans. And that's about as high as I would guess Republicans are going to get. And don't forget, they won 68 seats in 2010, but they were starting off at 188. So they got to about 250 or so. Uh, and that was um, and, and that was pretty much a functional high. They started losing seats in, in, 
in uh, districts where Democrats uh, were, were a little bit stronger almost immediately after that, and they came down a little bit. So, you know, I think if you're talking uh, 290 seats, you're, you're, you're really um, overthinking this. However, I will say this, and I haven't had a chance to address this in post, so I'll just say this and we'll, we'll close with this. I don't think people understand the, the political environment of high inflation, um, low growth, uh, higher uh, increasing interest rates, and a president who is so unpopular. We haven't seen that in over 40 years. And I don't think people understand the political environment that that creates. So, you know, there's talk about, well, there's going to be a rebound effect due to Dobbs. There's going to be uh, this issue or that issue. Republicans are going to choose bad candidates in a couple of places they have. All of that is, that's analysis that, that takes place in a 2010 environment, you know, where you re, you've recovered or a 2014 or 2018 environment. Those are good arguments in, the, in that. This is not that environment. This is a much different political environment where the, uh, where the economy is just simply, at least in, in terms of voter perception, melting down around Americans. And that has a tendency to really focus people solely on the economic issues. And so I think people are really missing that aspect of this electoral environment. It's something to keep an eye on as we go forward. Stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show, where we've got uh, Edward Niedermeyer coming on to talk about uh, Elon Musk and the uh, myths of Elon Musk's empire and the realities of Elon Musk's empire. It's a really great conversation, and you're going to want to you're going to want to walk through that, especially after watching how the Twitter deal fell apart. Maybe you can get a sense of where, where Elon Musk goes next, and where Tesla goes next. Coming up now on the Ed Morrissey Show. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast, and I am very excited to introduce you to uh, E.W. Niedermeyer, who uh, I have been wanting to talk to for quite some time about the Elon Musk and Tesla phenomenon. Uh, he wrote the book on it, literally, Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors, and E.W. Niedermeyer has a lot of uh, has a lot of experience in the auto industry and has got some uh, quite some insights in here. And what we're going to do here is we're going to uh, deconstruct, at least we're going to try to deconstruct some of the more common myths around Elon Musk. And uh, these uh, came up. And do you like E.W. E or uh, Ed or what? How do you like to be called? Actually, <laughs> Ed Ed is great. Uh, we we just talk Ed to Ed here. Two Eds are better than one. I always say <laughs> that. So Ed, I mean, we it, <clears throat> you've been pretty active on Twitter, very politely trying to deflate some of the um, I would call it irrational exuberance to uh, to pull a phrase out of the uh, economics uh, department uh, around. Elon Musk, and especially about his uh, attempted acquisition of Twitter. Um, first off, I guess you got to feel pretty good about being proven mostly right on how this Twitter deal <laughs> fell apart. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, um, a lot of this mythology, I think, has been around for quite some time, well before the, um, well before the uh, Twitter acquisition. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things, so, so ludicrous. You know, I, I, I knew when I wrote the book that the story wasn't over. So I was really trying to go into the history and really trying to understand, like, what are the patterns that motivate this company, motivate this guy? 
Um, and, you know, one of the things that I found, I think one of the most pivotal moments in the history of the, of the company in terms of really revealing, you know, because there's all this talk about, does, does Elon really care about money? Does he not? Like, there's all this, you know, sort of what, what are his real motivations, right? He, he's right. always talking about these big missions and, and all this stuff. And, um, and, and one of the moments that really just jumped out at me in the history was in 2006, when Tesla came out of stealth mode, um, you know, Martin Neighborhart, who was one, you know, the guy who originally incorporated the company uh, and then came very early together with Musk. Uh, he was the CEO. He was the focal point in all the coverage. He had a BlackBerry ad that kind of presented him as the Steve Jobs character, um, really, which sort of, you know, a lot of the branding that now we associate with Elon Musk. Uh, and um, Elon was really unhappy with the initial round of coverage um, and sent these emails, which leaked, um, complaining about it. And it really just revealed. And then he wrote his top secret master plan. And that was the start of him really being this important part of Tesla's brand, being the focal point and this visionary, you know, uh, uh, leader. And so I think that's really, you know, um, been one of the big motivations to him. And I think that like, if you look at a lot of things that have come since then, decisions that don't always make sense as like pure business moves, right? Which I think the Twitter right. <laughs> deal like doesn't make a lot of sense as a pure business move. I think when you start to think of it in that terms, in terms of his need to have this sort of image and and this adulation, like that's a common thread. I think that unites, unites a lot of, of this story and makes sense of a lot of it. Well, sure. I mean, and, and obviously the guy is a very successful entrepreneur. You got SpaceX, uh, he was involved in PayPal. He's been involved in a lot of different things. SpaceX, you know, I'm here in Central Texas, not terribly far away from the SpaceX facility there. And uh, so, I mean, this guy has, and he's got Tesla, which actually delivers uh, vehicles. And I, I, I've read the introduction to Ludacris, although I haven't been able to read the rest of the book. And again, that is Ludacris, the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors. And you can find that on benbellabooks.com. Or you can just go to Amazon. You can find it there too. But BenBellaBooks.com is is the um, is the primary from the publisher. Yeah, yeah, that's the publisher there. So you're getting it di direct from the publisher there. That's right. uh, and there was questions whether or not that was even going to happen in the beginning, as there usually is for these types of startups, right? It's not. I mean, Tesla wasn't the first startup that had questionable uh, delivery promises being made. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, I think, it, you know, there's there, it, a lot has changed right over the years. When I started, I got into the right. story uh, without really meaning to back in 2015. And, and if you were paying attention to Tesla back then, you know, the whole context and conversation, everything around it and, and Musk himself very different now than it, than it was then. Um, and, but I think there's a, there's a, a, something that you mentioned about him as an entrepreneur and as a successful entrepreneur. Yeah, clearly like he's tried some very hard things. He's had a lot more success than a lot of people, including myself, thought. And as a skeptic, I think it's really important to give people credit where, where it's due. And I really try and do that with, with, with Tesla, which is what I focus on as much as possible without getting distracted to all the other things that he does. But I think there is something really interesting about Musk that separates him from the rest of the sort of major entrepreneurs of our, of our time period, which is that unlike, you know, the two big examples would be Zuckerberg and, and Bezos, like these are also two of the other, you know, richest men in the world, some of the, the richest men in the world, they built businesses that are just these cash machines, right? And right. And, that's, and this is the thing that, that, this is how Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley, was that these technologies, particularly software, you know, these are things that once you build good software, it scales endlessly. And so the profits, just once you pay off your costs, become, the margins are huge. Elon Musk has never started a high margin business. He's never created a business that just absolutely Tesla does sort of make it makes some profit now. It has for the last few years under 
perfect conditions in terms of its product pipeline and the macro situation. Uh, but it's not a cash machine. SpaceX is not a cash machine. We know less about it, but none of his businesses are. And so like Musk is sort of unique in the sense that his wealth much more so than than Bezos or, or or Zuckerberg, it does depend on popularity and image and perception, and I think that's where he's been most successful as an entrepreneur. You know, and and you and I have had some exchanges on Twitter about this, um, and and I agree with you that a lot of people are sort of starry eyed when it comes to Elon Musk, and I think part of that is just the fact that. They really dislike the way Twitter is being run, and they were just really looking for some sort of white knight, and Elon Musk fit the bill. But what you're describing is actually reminiscent of something else that happened in the car industry. I was just watching, and I know that you're going to uh, know what I'm talking about here. I was just watching a uh, documentary on John DeLorean, right? Mm -hmm. And... Um, and I've seen the movie Driven too, which is actually pretty entertaining, although maybe not terribly accurate in some of the details. It's still terribly entertaining, but it also sort of captured the idea that John DeLorean really was trying to sell himself. And that was, it didn't start off as a con. It sort of ended up being a con. And, um, and DeLorean paid a big price for that uh, in trying to, escape the natural consequences of a con falling apart. And and I think a lot of people don't remember that about John DeLorean either. I think they remember the image, right? The he was the guy who was going to take it to you know to uh to the big three in Detroit and all of this. But DeLorean was pretty dark. <laughs> and and I think we have this tendency, maybe especially in the car industry, but just in terms of maybe now it's big tech as well to really sort of want to see white knights emerge like a John DeLorean, like an Elon Musk. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, that's been, that's the opportunity that, that Musk has really capitalized on is that, you know, he real, you know, obviously we have lots of different billionaires out there, but they all do stuff. And again, they, they do stuff where, you know, Bezos and, 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 and Zuckerberg, like they don't have to be popular because they have this cash machine. Right. They can be the least popular people in the country and the economics of what they do are just undeniable. Right. And so, and so, where, and, and so Musk took this, this other route where he has not pursued building that machine that like, no matter what happens to him personally, he'll always have that cash printer. So he'll always be who he is today, he took a much riskier. And so, and so the rewards have been better, right? With, with less actual economic value created in a, in a real lasting, meaningful sense, he's increased his personal wealth uh, to a whole other level. But I think part of what I'm trying to get across with all this is that it's fragile as well in a way that Zuckerberg and, and, and Bezos aren't because it really does depend on this public perception. And a lot of what I try and do in the book, you know, the, the first thing when I first stumbled onto this story, the first thing that hit me about it was, wow, there's this massive disconnect between the public perception and the public narrative about this, this company and the reality that I'm seeing now that I'm just sort of confronted with what's happening on the ground. And for five years, you know, I dug deeper and deeper into this company and that was the, the consistent theme. And I think that gap to me is, is the risk here. It's because the perception is what's driving the valuations and, and therefore the wealth and, and everything else. But when, that, when there's a gap between that perception and the reality, then all of that wealth and the capital and everything that's being built on top of it, it's, it's being built on sand to some extent. And I think that unlike Zuckerberg and Bezos and a number of other very wealthy people and, and the organizations and the movements and everything else that they built around themselves and, and with their wealth and everything, I think everything that ties back to Elon, it, it really is the vagaries of, of the popularity of one man. And that's that's a very unstable thing compared to the rest of our economy. And when you build 
huge economic edifices on, on unstable things, uh, over time, uh, the risks just, they don't go away. And I think, I mean, when, when you've been talking about this on Twitter, it, it, this is really the, the, the problem in relation to the Twitter deal, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people on, on Twitter who not are just mythologizing uh, Musk into the white knight, but also into the, uh, you know, into the black knight, maybe even the black knight from, um, from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. to a certain extent where he's either, he's either uh, the, you know, the prince of light or the prince of darkness when it comes to this. And, and I think you've always been careful to sort of be realistic about this and say, look, I mean, you know, Tesla's, Tesla's solid, it, you know, to a certain extent, it's solid. It's, it's, it's certainly producing cars and it, it's a real company, but it's that gap that you just described uh, that really matters in the Twitter deal because he doesn't have a cash, uh, a cash machine to, to fuel this. He's going to have to leverage Tesla to do it, which turned out to be true. And if Tesla takes a hit, uh, this deal is not going to go forward. And that turned out to be true. And really, honestly, I think it was um, maybe part of the part of it, what what we all missed, which uh, in, in analyzing this, which is that the Twitter move was an extremely risky move for very questionable benefit. And that's kind of a pattern with yeah. uh, Musk here, too. It is. And, and, and I think, you know, the thing that it's been wild watching it is, is that so when he does stumble, you know, I feel like everybody else is like, wait a second, this is Elon Musk. How can he? And I, I think the example of this for me that that stood out the most was was when the Cybertruck was launched. And I was there actually right across from where they were launching it. And I was with like watching the the reveal with like 100 or 200 like employees, you know, people who work for Elon, like true believer, you know, engineer guys. And like the reaction when the truck came out, when the windows were smashed, like all these like missteps that were really like jarring compared to every other of these shows that Tesla's put on, um, people were just like shocked. And for me, I saw the, the exact opposite way. What I saw was it, it, I'm shocked when he when he doesn't stumble. He's been walking on a tightrope for five years and people when he stumbled and, and he, he's he's taken risks that when you really look at them, when you really dig into what he's done to keep this company afloat. And again, this is what's in the book. Um, the risks that he's taken have just been absurd. And yet they've managed to work out so far, almost, you know, like shockingly well, like he's beaten the odds so consistently, but none of that changes the fact that he's still walking a tightrope and like, and juggling chainsaws. And like every six months or so, he throws another chainsaw and a bigger chainsaw, like, and, 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 and a flaming chainsaw on top of what he's already juggling. And he just piles up more and more and more risk. And it's like, to me, it's like, I, yes, I've been wrong about how long he's been able to manage that risk, He's been, it's been amazing, right? But like for him, his feedback loop is I take on risk, I get an advantage, it works out almost always. And so I'm just gonna do more and more and more. And so he's following that feedback risk uh, loop and, and, and piling on more and more risk. And it just gets more and more absurd. And it's like, it, it, just because he, he's made it this far I, against all the odds doesn't mean you know, that that just keeps going on forever. A survivorship and he, bias is, is a real thing, right? Right, right. Well, I, you know, and, and so is, you know, um, you know uh, adrenaline, addiction right and so is risk Absolutely. addiction i mean some people just don't know when to stop um that being said he's done he hasn't he has accomplished amazing things especially at spacex now mm. that long term is probably going to pay off if he can if he can continue doing that he will have you know a a space vehicle that will be reusable and will generate 
tons of income already starting to right i mean so that's a that's a long-term risk in a business that you're still really seeing government demand more than you're seeing private sector demand but that's that may change um tesla yeah. tesla's and the other thing about spacex is that there aren't a whole lot of there's not a big competition in there you have yeah. bezos with blue origin and Boeing is doing something, but it's under, you know, it's under NASA's control. And I, I grew up in the space program. My father worked in the space program for 30 years. Um, so I'm, I'm a little familiar with that. But NASA is a place where, where ideas go to not die, but maybe go into, you know, into suspended animation. Take, take a long years. vacation. Yeah, they yeah. Take, a, take a very long nap over at NASA, whereas, you know, Bezos and... Uh, Bezos and Musk are putting those things into, and, and for that matter, uh, Virgin uh, is is a competitor in that thing. But Tesla, <laughs> there's all sorts of competition. Even in the EV market, there's all sorts of competition from people who got there a lot earlier and who had a, a much better financial infrastructure to to back those types of things. And that, I think, is part of the reason why some of the other things that happen at Tesla happen the way they do. And you cover some of that in the book about the message control and about um, some of the em uh, employee-employer relationship <laughs> issues that have popped up over at Tesla over the years. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, um, you know, I, I had to decide really early on that I wanted to focus on Tesla and not on Musk and, and everything that he does. Um, right. And, and frankly, just as a part of that decision, uh, there's a lot of aspects to it. One was like, I wanted it to be a book I could actually write and I want to stick with my background as in reporting on the auto industry and, and that's what I know and all that. Um, but also like, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, what you say about SpaceX, like of, of all the things that Musk does, SpaceX, I have the least issues with. I think it's a private company. We don't really know what the unit economics of it are. We don't know right. how financially sustainable are. They're continuing to raise money, which suggests they aren't profitable, right? But we don't know enough enough about that. But I agree. I think that of all the things he does, that I don't waste time thinking about what he might be doing wrong there or whatever. Like, like for me, SpaceX is is fine, but Tesla and the car business is is a, a very, very difficult one. And again, like, like you have to give him credit it's one of the hardest businesses to enter in. It's one of the hardest businesses to be in, period, to run a company in. It's one of the it's one of the hardest businesses imaginable to start a new company in. And like he has gotten farther in that process of starting and establishing a new automaker than anyone in a hundred years. And like you just you have to give credit to that. And again, my pitch to people reading the book is not necessarily like this book exposes that everything is a fraud. Everything at Tesla is not a fraud. They make cars that people like and everything, but like you you kind of need to understand a like how the what are the challenges that the company's really been in because you don't see that right. covered you really just get the narrative right how have they gotten through those challenges what are the tactics and everything that that has allowed them to survive right people people like to like to tell themselves they make a car people like that car therefore the company is successful well you know that's a great sort of you know broad heuristic for 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 thinking about a company but you have to look at the actual details of what's actually happened and like that alone is not enough making a product people like is not enough um there are a lot of things that that you have to do and frankly some of the things that tesla's done over the years have been um very shady and i think that's also you know we're talking before about just sort of this feedback loop that musk is in one of them is that he can do whatever he wants to and he will get away with it and he's gotten away with a lot of things that people don't understand in terms of Auto safety regulate like evading reg various regulations. Uh, I mean, the the safety issues around autopilot, full self driving is a complete scam. Like, there's a, there's a lot of stuff, and again, this stuff is getting worse and worse as time goes on. 
Um, and it's because he he gets away with it and he's been sort of insulated by this cult that he's been, he's built around himself as well. Um, and again, I think to me, why this story matters is because I think, and again, I, I may be I may be proven wrong ultimately about this. Like I have to be honest, I don't know what the future holds, but like gravity is gravity. And I think the big lesson of this entire story is things can work out amazingly well in the short term. It can look like you're doing the impossible and and you can, you know, you know, but 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 really these are long-term things. And if you haven't built something that's long-term sustainable, how much does all that short-term success really mean? And and unfortunately, I say unfortunately, I would love, I grew up on the West Coast. I would love there to be a West Coast automaker that leads the world in technology. I mean, and I'm proud, I'm proud that Tesla is on the West Coast, but like it's not a sustainable company. Even now when it's making money, it's just not sustainable. And so if we want to continue to feel proud about this company and have it be sort of this thing that symbolizes America's ability to come back after you know a century start new car companies and, and reinvent things and like it needs to be a sustainable thing and as long as it's built on not just one person and but like one very unstable and like you know uh a guy whose behavior is, is in really unsustainable patterns like like we we shouldn't want that right we we should want the kind of asset that tesla is to this country to be on a more stable footing than that but extricating musk from tesla without breaking one or both is also not something that that will be easy or, or smooth or maybe even maybe even sustainable or, i mean possible yeah i, I mean I, we mentioned john delorean all, all you know in, in terms of cars i would say in terms of tech you're talking a steve jobs situation where steve jobs was basically separated from apple <laughs> apple apple turned uh i mean it was a disaster for apple the, the yeah. management team that, that took Apple away from Steve Jobs, as as much problems as Steve Jobs created in Apple, he turned out to be the driving force both, you know, um, you know, in, in terms of vision and really in terms of uh, creativity and 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 forward motion. Mm -hmm. um, and Apple couldn't live without him. Um, yeah. and, and they reconfigured back around Steve Jobs when they finally realized that and you may run into that sort of situation with Elon Musk, because you are getting cars. I, I, I gotta tell you, in between the time that you and I have been negotiating this, my neighbor across the street bought a brand new Tesla, and and they love it, <laughs> absolutely yep. love it. And and so the cars are being produced, as you say, um, they're apparently turning a profit. But again, that can change very fast. Yeah. Betamax turned a profit too, for a while. <laughs> And and nothing. I mean, no business or very few businesses go from huge profits to huge losses as fast as the car business, right? And that's yeah. because and 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 again, you know, early on in a in a car maker's history, you know, you start with small factories, small workforces, small everything, right? And so your fixed costs, uh, you know, which are which is what it's the, it's it's the anchor that drags you down when when you run into hard times economically. It's not that big, right? And and so as you expand, then your fixed costs get big, big, big. And like, again, in the car business, it gets bigger than almost any other business because you're talking about giant factories and supply chains around the world and R&D and all these things. And it's as companies get bigger that when then, you know, maybe the cyber truck comes out and it's kind of a dud and it doesn't resonate with truck buyers. I think that's very real risk. Uh, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, you've got two, three more factories, which Musk has already said are, are burning a lot of cash. That's what factories do unless they're selling almost every car that they make. Uh, like that. And so, you know, what's kept Tesla viable for this long is the brand. It's the appeal of the brand and Musk, the, the genius of it. See, and, and people tell themselves all kinds of stories about why this success is happening. For me, 
It's simple. It's Tesla saw that a lot of people were making money in high tech and that when there's a group of people that make money and share an identity, they want to buy things that reflect that identity. And in yep. this country, especially a car is really how you reflect your identity, how you make your money, where you come from, what you believe in. And there wasn't a car that was made for techies and the new tech wealth elite. Right. And that's what Tesla did. They, that was the economic and uh, opportunity. The car, the traditional car business completely blew it by not seeing that opportunity. It was a massive, massive error, but that's it. That that's the opportunity that they saw. But, but as you say, now everyone gets that that's a real opportunity. They understand the kinds of things that you need to do to, 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 to appeal to that market. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the, the, so far the cars have been sort of, you know, fairly um, uh, broadly appealing, right? So you talk about the Model S, like a big sedan, and then like a smaller sedan, a little crossover version of that and stuff like that. Model X, a little flashy. When you get to things like the Cybertruck, when you get to things like, um, you know, like uh, the, the the semi-truck, the Roadster, these things, this is where, it, 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 you know, you start to wonder like, are these all going to be hits? And um, if they're not, as this footprint expands, like you can go from making good money in the car business to just burning cash, you know, so fast that you go bankrupt in, in weeks. I'm talking big companies, right? This is what right. happened in 2008. And that was the first story I ever covered. And everyone always forgets how quickly the car business could go from printing cash to, to gone, just zero. Yep. Yep. And uh, I mean, Chrysler all but blinkered out in 2008, 2009. I mean, I think they're still around, but they're, they're, they're owned. It's a foreign, at least for a while. I'm not sure if it's still the case. They're foreign owned company and more or less just a brand, not really the, the Chrysler um, that we knew prior to the uh, financial collapse. They were merged with Fiat and then, and then that company then merged with Peugeot uh, or right. uh, yeah, Peugeot Citroen. So yeah, so now it's like a French, Italian, American. And this, again, this is what's happening in the car business, right? It consolidates. Smaller right. companies become bigger companies. And that's why it's so amazing that a company has been able to start because you don't have the scale when you're starting. Um, but even today, even in making a million cars a year, it's a huge accomplishment, right? And again, like, like you have to be able to hold in and we're bad at nuance in this day and age on all kinds of topics, as I'm sure you know, right? right. Like, yep. like it's not just Elon Musk, it's a lot of things. And, and frankly, I think a lot of successful people exploit that. I think Elon does. I think he forces people to either love him or hate him. And I think that's part of how he's built this, um, uh, yeah, this image, but, but like, you have to, in order to understand the story, you have to be able to hold two thoughts in your mind that like. One, yes, it's an amazing, unprecedented accomplishment to go from zero to a million units. Uh, like it's, it, it shouldn't be possible. And if you look at the history, it, it took a lot of <laughs> chicanery to be possible, right? Uh, on the other hand, just because you've made that incredible accomplishment doesn't mean that it's it's not built on sand and that it can't go away in an instant um, and that that risk is not really real. And I think especially like, you know, as a, as a society, we have to come to terms a little bit with particularly the self-driving and, and driver assistance technology stuff. There's a lot of issues around that. Yep. Um, and I think that that Tesla has made some really, really poor choices in that realm that creates massive risks also for the company that people just do not understand at all. And then just to wrap this up, right, um, the attempted acquisition of Twitter is another massive risk. And in large part, because it was leveraged off of uh, off of Twitter value and or, I mean, off of Tesla value, excuse me, is it leveraged off of Tesla's value. And that is that is risky enough in itself. But if it damages Elon, if that Twitter deal damages Elon Musk's finances, it really could end up uh, undermining Tesla. And, and there's another aspect to that, of course, which was Tesla's investment in Bitcoin, which along with everybody else's investment in, in cryptocurrency is um, 
really diminished in value. And so you've got all these multiple risks here involving this Twitter deal, which really does kind of prompt the question as to whether or not this might not be an inflection point for Musk in terms of his ability to continue on with some of these, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, entrepreneurships. Adventures, yeah. Adventures, yeah. yes. No, and and I think that the for me and you know there's a lot going on with the with the, the Twitter acquisition. Um, and uh, but like yeah, he sort of got trapped. Like the big picture take right is he got kind of he he did this. He it was an impulsive thing. He got committed to buying this at this higher price. Its stock price has gone down. Tesla stock price has gone down. It, he's he doesn't have cash. He has to leverage his Tesla stock to pay for all this stuff. There's a lot going on there. But you're right. It is it it. it it, it uh, runs a lot of risks for, you know, this sort of house of cards, right? Like uh, Tesla stock is sort of the foundation that this is all, Musk Inc. Is, is all built on. And if he has to leverage that stock further or sell it in order to follow through on this commitment, um, that can really shake the foundations of a not very stable structure. But I think the most important thing about this and why I think it is an inflection point is that, um, you know, he made that decision because, he you know, it wasn't smart. He didn't put a lot of thought into it. I don't think like, I don't yeah. think he's, he's dumb. His problem. And it's a very, you know, common problem for people who achieve a certain level of not just money, but also I think really fame is a lot of it is that it reaches a point where uh, the person can no longer uh, get feedback. No yep. one else. He doesn't have people around him that can tell him, you know what, man, like I see what you're going for here, but like, this isn't the way to do it. Let's take a beat. Let's find another way. You know, like he has enablers, but I don't think he has real friends. And if you look at the entire discourse around this company, I've been, you know, <laughs> had waves of it wash over me ever since I started reporting this. He has built a cult. And that's been, and again, this is this short-term, long-term thing. Building that cult is a very, very successful short-term tactic. In business now we see, also maybe in politics, building a cult oh, like yeah. following can be a very, very successful tactic in the short run, right? Yep. But then you reach that point where the cult is so successful that no one can rein you in. You're out of control. You lose touch with reality. You're not getting healthy feedback loops, right? You're getting enabling. You're surrounded by enablers. And then you make mistakes. And and then what? And I think that's what we're seeing here. I think it's something we, we see in a lot of, of, of American life, unfortunately, these days. And I think that we'll see how it all plays out. But I think that ultimately, when it does all play out, I think that's going to have to be one of the big lessons here is that... You know, that temptation, especially in the online age, to to build a cult and to let that accomplish something huge for you is always going to be there. But I think it's going to take some Icarus's flying too close to the sun on that. And and I think we have a couple of examples of that. But if, if that's what happens to Musk, it will be the biggest, it will be the example that defines this phenomenon. And I really hope that will be a big enough thing for us to learn this lesson, because I think it's a really important one. Well, Ed, you stole my... You stole my uh, my, uh, my my off ramp there. I was actually going to bring up Icarus and 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 the uh, you know ancient Greeks knew about hubris, but yes. you know, you're you're ahead of me on this, man. I don't know. So 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 the subtitle for my book was actually going to be the tragedy of Tesla Motors, and I meant that in the classical Greek mythology sense. Yes, because yeah. I think he's a he's a tragic hero, right? And you have this tragic flaw, which is the the character, the hubris, oftentimes to achieve the impossible, right, and to to dare to even try then you have the ability to do it. These are the heroic aspects that we're familiar with, but the Greeks understood that, that those things that allow people to be heroic also tend to lead to the downfall of that person. And I think we're getting one of the oldest stories ever told here. Uh, it just yeah. it updated for our, our crazy times that we live in. Well, uh, Ed Niedermeyer, 
has written the book on Tesla, Ludicrous, The Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And um, and you can find that again at Ben Bella Books. That's B-E-L-L-A, Ben Bella Books. Dot com. You can also get it at Amazon if you want to uh, if you want to irritate Elon Musk and buy it from you know Jeff Bezos. You can go over there too. Um, and and then you also have a um, I, I guess you have a uh, podcast of your own, the Autonicast. Is that what it's called? That's right. If you go to autonicast.com or search Autonicast on any uh, podcast platform, uh, we have about weekly conversations with uh, leaders in the automated driving technology space, but also all kinds of future mobility technology stuff. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, uh, yeah, check that out. Excellent. That's autonocast.com, A-U-T-O-N-O-C-A-S-T.com, autonocast.com. So go check that out. Ed, it has been a real pleasure talking with you, real pleasure interacting with you on Twitter as well. We got to throw a shout out to Montana Skeptic for making this happen. Montana Absolutely. Skeptic, you're, you're the man. Great guy. Yeah. Thanks, Montana. Uh, yeah. And thank you so much for having me. This is this is a really fun conversation. Uh, great. I'm uh, really glad we were, we were able to, to make this happen. And uh, yeah, absolutely. See you back on Twitter. And see you back on Twitter. Maybe back here from time to time too. check in uh, as things develop. Anytime you like. All right. Ed Niedermeyer, thank you so much for being with us. Stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Thank you for watching and listening to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Be sure to subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube to get alerted as soon as new episodes get published. You can support the Ed Morrissey Show and Hot Air's VIP reporting by becoming a VIP member, too. Visit hotairvip.com and use the promo code SAVEAMERICA, all one word, for 40% off your membership. Choose VIP Gold and gain membership to access to all of the town hall sites. Thanks again for watching and listening.